Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. On June 5th, 2020, Hindrata Ali released the call for a robust anti racism plan for the geosciences petition. In the petition, Dr. Ali and her collaborators outlined 15 action steps for societies, organizations, companies, and individuals to take to strive toward anti-racism and equity. In this important conversation, Dr. Ali discusses how the petition originated, what it means for a professional society to be anti-racist and equitable for all members, her personal experiences of racism in the geosciences, and concrete steps organizations can take to better support Black, Indigenous, Latinx people, and other minoritized groups in the geosciences. As of June 19th, over 19,000 have signed the petition. Dr. Ali is an associate professor in the geosciences department at Fort Hayes State University. She was honored with the SEG Outstanding Educator Award in 2018 and the AAPG Inspirational Geoscience Educator Award in 2017. Visit seg.org forward slash podcast for Dr. Ali's full bio and links to resources she mentions in this conversation. Let's get started. I I think before we explore the petition that you created, I think I, I wanted to give a little context to the listeners. You know, for many, sadly, George Floyd's death woke up many people, especially white people in the U.S. and even the world about the systemic racism that people of color are facing um, in the U.S. particularly, but all over. And and that reality could be new for many non-persons of color, especially in regards to the geosciences. So I know we can't explore all the nuances of this question, but could you just elaborate for people on a few ways that people of color deal with racism in the geosciences specifically? Okay, so I think I cannot say that I know exactly how every single person of color deals with this problem, but I can speak from my own experiences. And one of the the first ways I think is we try to put our head down and soldier on and hope that eventually somebody would realize that this is not right and make a change. Unfortunately, it's more often a disappointment than a success. So that is one way. It's just you try to put your head down and hope to blend in as much as possible. Unfortunately, because of your color, especially if you have a different skin color, skin tone, right? You have this melanin. You can't really blend in because that's the first thing that people noticed. Um, something I tell my students in intro to geology class is color is one of the most obvious things that we notice when we're describing minerals, but it is not diagnostic. So you see color and you notice it and it's okay to notice it, but don't make it the only definition of who the individual is. Unfortunately, most of the time, that's really what we experience. So that's how we deal with it. We try to modify the way we talk in order to adapt or adjust. One of the most interesting experiences that I had as a Black person in my academic geoscience career is when I was a student, I was told, you need to change how you talk 
so that your professors can understand you. And I worked my hardest to do that. When I became a professor, I was told, well, students don't understand you. You need to change how you talk so your student can understand you. So it didn't matter what circumstances I was in. Because I was not in the majority, I still needed to change. It just didn't matter. I had to take a speech pathology class because people considered my accent from somebody who speaks five different languages a pathology. That is how we deal with racism. You do these things to accommodate people's sensitivity. You change how you dress. You change your natural look. There's a litany of lists. I don't think I can exhaust it because every person of color is different, but that gives you an idea of some of the things that as a person of color, um, a minoritized person, you have to do in order to, to adjust to the community. And I don't think it's also exclusive to just sciences. I really think it's a much broader thing. Absolutely, as we're finding out right now, and, and thank you for sharing there. And, and I think I, I do something that a lot of white people do is, is kind of force people of color to speak for all persons of color. So thank you for reminding that you, you can only share your experience, and but that's very important to share. And now, kind of segueing to your petition. So on June 5th, you published a petition titled A Call for a Robust Anti-Racism Plan for the Geosciences. And to date, it's received over 18,000 signatures. You've increased the signature goal several times now. I want to start with a question you ask in your petition. What does it mean for a professional society or organization to be anti-racist and equitable to all members? Ah, uh, Yes. So that is a very good question. There are so many different ways, and you can summarize it in that. Everybody feels comfortable, but let me break this down. First, for a professional society or organization to be anti-racist, it means that they state clearly anti-racism, anti-discrimination, anti-harassment in their codes of conduct, codes of ethics. That they interrogate the policies of the societies and organizations, most of which were created when discrimination and racism were legal in some cases, that they should interrogate these policies and their bylaws to find areas that protect racism and or a bias towards minoritized groups. But this is just a start, right? Because once you've done this, you've published this and done this interrogation, then you have to do the work of making that society equitable. And that means that every member in the majority and in the minority thrives. When all members can do and can rise through the membership to become leaders if they want to. Look at most of our professional societies and look at the demographic and the gender of the people who have been in leadership since most of these organizations started. And you will understand why this is important. When all members can and do win all types of awards and honors, when all members feel safe at all meetings and are included in all conference spaces, 
including bathrooms and parent rooms and access ways and are welcome. I mean, genuinely welcome to professional meetings, not just because they pay dues. Then we can begin to see that was thriving, it was striving towards equity. I don't think that we can achieve 100% equity. We can say that, oh, we've achieved, because it's work in progress. Like every, like for every um, person, we are all growing. And so it should be a continuous effort because if you stop, you're going to slide back. Well, your, your petition goes into 15 specific action steps for societies, organizations, companies to take. And before we explore some of these individually, how did you get it down to narrow to these and develop these 15 concrete action steps? So this is um, this is a good, good question. <laughs> I think to answer this question, I should go back to a little bit to how this all came about. So as a Black person, I was very distraught when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all these other people were killed. And I felt very anxious and very, um, very scared. But I also serve on many professional society committees and other professional groups. And I was having all these meetings and most of the people that I was meeting with, mostly white people, most often I'm the only black person in the room, were really not, they seemed like they didn't, like nothing was happening, right? And I was sitting here feeling like this lump in my stomach that wouldn't go away. Fortunately, I have a group of friends and colleagues and they are my go-to people when I need to vent and so we started having um, conversations following this. So first, I, 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 many people were already talking about societies not responding. And I also sent out a tweet to say, hey, I want to hear from my professional organizations, mostly because I was at these meetings and nobody was saying anything or showing any empathy, or at least that's how I felt. So when this statement started coming out, Honestly, I did not feel any better because it was like checking a box. And so with my group of friends, eight of them, um, seven of them, we started discussing and talking about expectations and what we would like to see from societies. And through just text messages, we started putting out some ideas and decided that maybe um, this would be a good thing to, to write up. And that's how it went down from there. But we also realized that we needed so many different voices because the way I look at it is today a Black person is murdered. Well, and we have all these statements. We don't want to wait for a woman to be harassed, sexually harassed, to issue another statement. We don't want to wait for indigenous people land to be seized before we issue another statement. We don't want to wait for an LGBTQ person to be thrown out of a job to issue another statement. So the idea was, why don't you use this opportunity to get as many voices as possible and see if we can garner some, some support? And that's how it, it, it started and it just kind of went from there. It's Well, it's, it's really an impressive petition and, and we'll have a link to it in 
in the show notes for this episode so you can read some of the read all of the 15 steps. But looking at, at a couple of them that you bring up, you know, in a recent conversation I had with Eve Sprunt, she shared about how publishing through various societies really helped her career, gave a name for herself, especially in these inevitable industry downturns. And you mentioned in the petition that frequently Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people and other minoritized groups are often the first to leave jobs during downturns, which we're in one right now. What steps could societies take to amplify the voices of these groups to better support them through these inevitable industry downturns? So thinking about that, let me first say that from my experience um, and talking with some of my peers and especially Black and minoritized people who have unfortunately been either laid off or left profession, industry, academia, whatever, it boils down to a couple of things. They do not have the network and the sponsors to advocate for them when times of hardship happen. That's basically the underlying factor. If you have somebody, when it comes down to it, that can advocate for you, then you have better chances of staying. So where I see societies is that they bring together so many different people, tens of thousands of people from different backgrounds and different um, career stages. So they have agency to bring to bear their influence in working with industry, academia, and other groups to help minimize these types of implicit and sometimes explicit biases, right? So that is where I see the role of professional societies. So one of the ways that this can be done is we are scientists, so we can invest in data collection and some research to really pin down why these groups are the first to go, what are some of their observations and the observations of those who let them go. Because we're scientists, we want to see the data, so we should invest in this. And then maybe start thinking of setting up support systems with industry partners, institutions, academic institutions, research institutions, private consultancies to better retain the minoritized staff. Another thing is that when these things happen and later on things improve, then there's a boom stage. Often you hear, well, we can't find minoritized people to hire. And so the question is, if I leave my industry because of X, Y, Z reason, chances are that most of the people that look up to me in my network would not be pursuing that industry because they're learning from my experience. So sometimes I think we should also think of the long-term impact of these um, changes and how it affects our profession and our discipline. You know, building off that that idea of, of science scientists loving data, one of your recommendations is for societies to publish annual reports on demographic data, who are getting the awards, as you mentioned at the top, who's engaged in leadership in the organization, and so forth. How could a society get started moving on this action step, and what data would you like to see in these type of reports? So 
I think societies already, to a limited extent, collect data about members. So doing interviews and surveys of membership with specific information that you want to get is very possible. Like we do this, I mean, just within the last just within the last few months since the beginning of the year, I've received so many surveys from SEG, for example, right? So it's possible we can do surveys and we can publish the data. One of the important things about surveys is letting people know exactly what the survey is about and what it is going to be used for because that helps people respond to surveys a little bit more objectively. You can do this as a specific project of research, or you can do it at the base level, just through membership renewal, right? Just asking people to provide some specific information when they renew their membership. I know some um, societies do this better than others. I'm a member of about eight professional societies, so I've had the time to sample. We also need to know who is being represented in our society at the more granular level. So you want to get information about gender identity, sexual orientation, career stage, interest, career goals, the race, ethnicity, veteran status, with all these things that make people feel excluded or more or less included in different spaces. So those are the types of data that I want to see in addition to data about who has been in leadership throughout the history of the organization, who is getting the awards um, and what type of awards are they getting, right? Um, who is nominated? What are the terms? So put all of these things into context and we'll see that some of the excellence and meritocracy that we talk about may not be so excellent. You know, one one reaction on Twitter that I've seen from this petition is the gratitude of alerting your white colleagues that minoritized groups are not safe in the field. Could you elaborate on this reality for many persons of color and what steps societies could take to support safe and accessible field work for everyone? Minorities are not safe. Again, there is another concept in, 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 in these discussions um, that is intersectionality, and there are so many specialists that can talk about it, which is the intersection of different identities when it comes to different species. I just want to throw that in there because I wanted to make clear that the experiences would differ depending on whether, for example, you are a Black man or a Black woman or a Black LGBTQ person or a Native American or Indigenous person, Latinx, and so forth. Those experiences might differ so slightly, but the overall feeling is that of not being safe. Examples, or to elaborate on this, again, I can draw from my own experiences mostly because I think a lot of people can speak specific experiences depending on where they did field work. Something that people do when they go out into the field often is drinking. And it's considered a socializing experience. And sometimes they do more than just drink. For a Black person who is in this environment, say we're out camping and people are drinking and everybody is drinking. 
as a black person, I am very conscious that if law enforcement shows up, chances are I'll be picked up um, much, much quicker, regardless of whether I was participating or not. Cops have been called on me because I was driving out to the field and went through a neighborhood and people thought that I was dealing drugs. This is somebody who has never seen what illicit drugs look like. So those are just some examples. We have that at the back of our mind. Personally, I have gone to the field with people that are physically bigger and taller than me, and we still had people coming to ask them if they were safe and giving me stares, not greetings, not acknowledgement. So basically the assumption is if this person wanted or had a crush on me or wanted to hurt me, all they needed to do was say, yeah, I'm in danger. And I shudder at what could happen to me in that situation when I'm alone with two or three people out in the field. And this is for somebody who is five foot five and 125 pounds. So I could go on and on. Again, I, I, I don't think that a lot of this is new to most people, but yes, it is. And I'm a woman. Don't even get me started on the experience of black men and other minoritized men out in the field because they are literally viewed as a danger. I remember when I was doing my doctorate in Southeast Missouri, and I would go out to the field with my maids to go help with my field work, and we had to go to the sheriff's office and get permit slips and um, reflection vests and I mean, we had to like get this list of things and put on us so that people would feel safe seeing us out in the field. These are just some examples from my own personal experience and the list could go on. I experienced that when I was a student. I experienced that as a faculty member. Most often I found myself being protected by my students out in the field because they are white. So it, it, it is, yes, it is something that I, 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 I can understand that if somebody has never experienced it, they may not really, um, really know that it happens or they may not even be aware that they are doing it, but it does happen. And, and it doesn't stop for, for you, whether you're a student or, or a professor. So I, I think, thank you for sharing that perspective. And, you know, we're, SEG is going to, have their annual meeting in Houston, hopefully physically in Houston uh, this year. Are there things based on what you highlight in your petition that you would like to see at the annual meeting to address some of these issues that you bring up? Yes, actually, um, going back to, 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 to the question that you said, um, I was going to add that one of the things that um, professional societies, because I think some of the examples that I present are a little bit more, could be viewed as outside the scope of professional societies. So one of the things that specifically I would imagine professional societies doing is to use their influence again 
to think about the choice of places where they organize field trips, field sessions, and take advantage of the history and behaviors to educate and sensitize because the societies, when they go for a conference or a meeting, they are bringing business to these communities. And I think you can use that influence to educate and sensitize people and make the community recognize that in this group, in this society, we have a spectrum of people that are our members and we expect that they will be treated equally, that they will be approached, we would interact with them in the same way. So even though some of the things may not be specifically about societies, but if I have had experience, like the experience I had going to some field sites, if there's a professional meeting that is going to, to, to a field trip there, how do you think I would feel about signing up for that conference? I'm a professor. How would I feel about engaging my students to go to that conference or to that field trip? So there are so many layers to this. So that is one way that I think societies can, can engage. Um, for the annual meeting in Houston, one of the things that I think the society can still do is maybe to, as a finalize abstracts, events, sessions, they can think about who is being tapped to talk in what space. They can think about who is being supported with meeting funds. They can think about the slate of awardees and how that came about, who was doing that selection, etc. They can also just engage with the petition, I hope, to look at it and start thinking about how do we use some of this information to start affecting change or to start improving where we've not been excelling? Otherwise, I am not in the conference annual meeting organization committee, maybe on, except maybe in a couple of SEG Women's Network events. So I don't think I have a lot of influence there. But it could be could be helpful for those committee members, a part of those groups, to read this petition and, and maybe get inspired to to try some things. You know, as you as you mentioned, this is a a very layered issue, and you know, as you've shared throughout, you know, you're sharing your experience, and depending on who we are speaking with, there those experiences are are going to be a wide range of of experiences of what they're they're going through being a geoscientist. But I I don't want to get too lost that SEG or other societies don't even get started. So what what would you say are, are good starting places for these organizations to start developing policies and programs to address anti-racism? To start developing um, processes and policies. So first, again, to consult and maybe consider updating the policies that are in place to actually reflect that desire and interest to engage with and begin to implement anti-racist, anti-discrimination, anti-harassment policies. So first, I think acknowledging that these things exist within our society structurally, not just some individual 
But that structurally, how our societies are set up encourages these things to happen. I think acknowledging that is a big first step. Second, I think that our societies should really embrace the word Black, Indigenous, Latinx, LGBTQ plus people. Like we should not be afraid to say those words. I've found myself in many conversations lately where people were willing to say everything except say Black person. And I'm sitting there, I'm saying, that's me. So we should be able to say that, to not be afraid of, why is it, why is it so scary to just acknowledge that Black person exists? I don't know. Or that an indigenous person exists. Maybe I know. Third, we should then update our codes of conduct and codes of ethics and make them clear and name words, name things. We should not layer things in, in wording that is watered down, basically. Because if you cannot name it, often it's like it doesn't exist. So I think that would be my, my suggestion, but I have to also put a disclaimer here. I am a geoscientist. I do exploration geology, stable isotope geochemistry. This is not my area. So mostly I'm speaking from experience. I think there are also very learned social scientists and other people that could really talk about these things at length and give us better suggestions how to deal with and engage with these topics. Yeah, that that that's a good lead into my last question. But I also think what you just said illustrates a helpful point to understand, you know, as a white man, you know, I am an economist or I have a, you know, master's degree in nonprofit management. That's that's me and and you're a geoscientist, but you're also a black woman and you can't escape that reality in these experiences you've had. So you, it's an, I mean, unfortunate is the right word, but it's just the reality of your life too, that you can't just be a geoscientist and that's part, that is the problem. That's, that's, yep. That's why I found myself in this space, right? That's why you wrote the petition. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, so lastly, you know, for individuals or societies that, that would like to learn how to be a better supporter of their Black, Indigenous, Latinx, LGBTQ geoscientists, you know, what resources, what authors do you recommend for them to get started or how to get started to be a better supporter? Oh, Andrew. So two things. First, it's, it's so common for people to turn to minoritized people to ask them to do the work of trying to find resources, educate, give them tips, share their trauma, and all of these things. We do it when we feel the strength to and when we want to. I really wouldn't want it to be my job to find resources for people to educate themselves. Because we are scientists, when we want to go after something, when we start our research projects, usually we don't know what we'll find. If we're really invested, we go out and we look for the information. So yeah, I would encourage everybody to put in the effort to look for information. That said, there are some groups that have already compiled information that I can point people to. First of all, there is 
the petition. Go read it. Just go read our petition and see some of the steps that we've outlined there. Second, go read the Black in the Ivory Tower hashtag on Twitter and other publications. There's a lot of information that would give you pause. Third, some societies, and I want to give a shout out to the Paleontological Society, they have a how to be an anti-racism ally document that has some great information that people can check out. You have a um, Time Scavenger blog that have lists and videos and things that people can look into. You have GeoLatinas that have put together actions for change document and with a lot of resources. You have Advanced Geo Partnerships. It is a group of geoscientists that provides the website has information about how to be an ally, how to be bystander, a good bystander, how to engage in accessible field work. We also provide training. I'm one of the trainers for that group. It is targeted towards geoscientists. So go check out Advanced Geo and all these other groups. This is just a sample, but please, people, just put in the effort and do some work. We're scientists. We can do this. Well, that is a, a great place to leave it. Uh, thank you for creating this petition and, and stepping up to do that and sharing it with, with us today a little bit more about what's happening. And I just really appreciate your willingness and able to, to share your experience with this audience today. Thank you, Andrew, for having me. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak in this space. I hope that as many people engage with the information and the petition, it would show our professional societies that this is not, this is a popular opinion that people really do want to see things change. Because I think one of the holdbacks has been that maybe people would be hostile to it. And to be honest, when we started the petition, we were aiming for a thousand signatures, which we got in like the first few hours. So, it is a popular opinion, so we can do it. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast. Please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this episode. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. Go to our website at seg.org forward slash podcast to find all our episodes and learn how you can listen to this podcast directly on your phone without downloading an app. Original music by Zach Bridges. This episode was hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. The SEG podcast team is Jennifer Crockett, Allie McGinnis, and Mick Sweeney. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.